0: For January 21st, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 238, The Poor Man's Liam Neeson. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From a balmy 80-degree Los Angeles, California... Yeah, suck on that, Northeast. Uh, I'm Matthew Rather, uh, here to overthink Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Last Stand and action movies and comebacks and all kinds of things uh, with the panel. But uh, we have a few things that we would like to say beforehand. So over to Pete Fenzel to kick it off.
1: Hey, a uh, little bit of very sad news. Uh, I just wanted to say a couple words about how this past week, uh, overthink- one time overthinking a guest writer, big fan of the site, a f- personal friend of mine, comedian, uh, musician, overall great guy, uh, TC Cheever, passed away, finally uh, finished his long battle with uh, pancreatic cancer. Uh, he's very much missed. By a lot of people, is a wonderful human being, and uh, I encourage you to go check out the "Just Say No to Wonka" article and overthinking it. The TC wrote back in 2009. You get a sense for his distinct sense of humor and his outlook on things, which was really remarkable and a uh, and really, really sort of glorious and wonderful presence to have in our, our lives. Those of us who knew him. So, uh, just you know. Pour one out for TC, and we're gonna, you know, dedicate some sense of this podcast to him because he loved the site and he loved enthusiasm and talking about things that we love and care about and being funny and being a comedian. And we're gonna hope to entertain you a little bit uh, in, in his memory and and as a tribute and whatnot. So and look look on hoping to put something up on the site later this week uh, related to you know sort of his his work. But uh, for now, just wanted to say a couple of those words. Just so
0: put in context. No, thanks, Pete, and it's sure. it's good that we uh, had him on the site uh, as a guest writer. I'm glad that we did that. Um, there's sort of no way to segue from that to anything else, so I'll just I'll just uh, jump right in and say that uh, our second announcement is <laughs> that. Um, this is the, the week of overthinking its fifth anniversary. It's January 22nd. In January 22nd, 2008, we went live. We, uh, you know, published our first, I think we put five articles up that day that we'd uh, been kind of stockpiling and stuff. And uh, back, back then, there will be blood was the hotness, right? And there was, uh, you know.
2: There was a lot of drinking of people's milkshakes. There was it, was some, all, yeah. it was all fresh and new.
1: I think talking about There Will Be Blood was like a big motivator in putting this site together, right? Like we really loved that
0: movie.
1: (laughs) I recall – I kept that ticket stub for that movie in my wallet for like two years (laughs) until I lost my wallet. (laughs)
0: Well, it it sort of like highlights the impulse that gave rise to the site that is like, we thought this thing was really cool. And we had a lot that we like wanted to say and wanted to like get together with our friends and kind of hash out. And so that was the that was the sort of inception of overthinking. And it would be another year before the podcast went uh, regular went to the sort of weekly schedule. But so here it is five years who who would have thought that we we would get this far. Uh, Certainly not us. If you had asked us. um, I'm not sure what the over under would have been on on predictions but like 18 months is is my guess you know right would have been the, the median of predictions uh from all of us as to to how it's how long it would have lasted we're really glad that it's lasted a lot longer than that it is awesome uh doing overthinking it so we are going to celebrate so if you are in or around Uh, The New York City area next weekend, January 26th, 2013, or if like me, you feel like flying from Los Angeles to New York for this occasion. um, Come meet us uh, Saturday, January 26th at 9 p.m. in Alphabet City at the I think it's called the 14th Street Bar or the 11th Street Bar. Bar. (laughs) Mark Mark is going to is going to punch me in the face for that. The 11th (laughs) Street Bar. Uh, In Alphabet City. So uh, that's where we will be. You can meet all of your favorite overthinkers. I know Pete is traveling down from Boston.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm Uh, excited. It's gonna be great.
0: I've heard from from uh, John Parrish that he is traveling down and I have heard from McNeil. Uh, that he's traveling up from Philadelphia, uh, joining uh, Blinky, Lee, and uh, other New York area overthinkers. And so, you know, you'll get to meet us from far and wide, uh, get to hang out, get to uh, enjoy, some, um, enjoy some, some drinks and some cake with friends. There will be cake. It will have our mascot on it. Uh, apparently it costs an arm and a leg to put a custom picture on a cake, but we are going to do it. All our (laughs) profits for 2012 are going into this cake. Yeah. When, right. When when we asked you to click on that Amazon link, this is what it was for, right? A giant cake that we want to share with you. We want to give you, (laughs) let them eat cake. Um, so, uh, once again, Saturday, January 26th, 9 p.m., uh, the 11th Street Bar in Alphabet City in New York. Uh, can't wait to see you there. Panel, on to the question of the week. This uh, week marks Arnold's return to action cinema, and when I say Arnold, as if you needed me to clarify, I mean Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, who comes back to the screen with The Last Stand, uh, where he plays alongside Johnny Knoxville, right? Now, uh, aside from a couple of Expendables movies in which he played, you know, not, not main parts... Um, the uh, the last time he really was in a uh, uh, an action movie was Terminator Three: Rise of the Machines, um, in uh, two thousand three. So it's been ten years for Arnold. Though he did play Prince Happy in Around the World in Eighty Days in two thousand four. I think we can like <laughs> sort of. I think we can ignore that one safely. As sort of is that noise. the Jackie
1: Chan one? Was that the Jackie Chan Around the World? It, is in the 80 Jackie days? Chan
2: one? Although Jackie Chan wasn't even the main character, that's an excellent question. Who was actually the main character in *Around the World*? Was it Owen Wilson? Was no, it, like a, it was. A it, was
0: it was Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan. Yeah. Really, who is Steve Coogan? I don't even remember who Steve Coogan is. He looks like obviously it was Steve Coogan. Steve, oh sorry, Steve Coogan is. Oh, it's
1: it's the guy from Hamlet Two. The guy from Hamlet Two was the lead in this movie. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yes,
0: but he's he's uh, he did. You might know him. He did a, a series I think called The Trip. Um, that was a TV series that got released as a uh, kind of cut together condensed and released as a movie. And he's best known I think for being Alan Partridge, who is a character like a much beloved. Um, character on on British TV.
2: Oh, okay. he was also a voice in the Marmaduke movie. <laughs>
1: <Good>. <laughs> He's got Winner Radar all over him, man. Winner Radar. So we're
0: we here to the devote the, the
2: reason whole. Reason who I believe is either a dog or a cat.
0: Uh, we're gonna uh, devote the whole podcast to Steve Coogan and Steve Coogan related trivia and and <laughs> Steve Coogan's oeuvre. Yep. Coogan, Coogan's oeuvre. Say that five times <laughs> fast. <This>, <laughs> the kuvra um no uh so uh arnold schwarzenegger so uh in honor of this comeback after 10 years what from your life uh 10 years ago would you like to make a comeback uh hey drink because it's not pete fenzel it's (laughs) matt belinke
2: um hey guys so it's not quite 10 years ago but my answer is going to be grand theft auto san andreas (laughs) <laughs> it came out of 2004 and it was very big for me for a time i was very much into that um if you guys recall I, I i have a one of my most vivid memories like long after i've forgotten things like the name of my first grade teacher or like you know the, the the job i'm supposed to be going to um i'm going to like remember the day that like i like stole a plane in las vegas or the the grand theft auto equivalent of las vegas and i was sort of like you know i was I was driving it, and I was trying to, like, come up with a, a way to land it, and I, like, landed it on a highway with, like, cars going, and somehow the plane lasted just long, and it was, you know, on fire, but I managed to, like, jump out of it and run just far enough away so that I didn't get blown up by it. And it was, and then, like, you know, that they, happened to, like, knock a sort of Ferrari off of its path, and, like, I could jack that car and just keep going. And it was, like, a beautiful, it was one of those, like, beautiful moments of serendipity that Grand Theft Auto is great at. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, and I remember distinctly the moment I decided that I could not play Grand Theft Auto San Andreas anymore, which is when I realized I was spending a lot of time at the gym in <laughs> Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. <laughs> Because it, it, for those of you who remember the game, you recall that there are a number of women in the game, and they all have very distinct preferences as to how muscular you can be, and so that while there were some women you had to work out for, there were also women that you had to like let yourself go physically and, and like eat a lot of burgers and try not to get exercise like purposely like not take your bicycle places uh, you know, like like take take the car everywhere, like try not to walk if at all possible, and so like I was spending time on the virtual treadmill. <laughs> just, like, watching my character run and then realize that, like, I had a gym membership that I hadn't used in, in weeks and weeks. And then I realized, like, I could not in good conscience play anymore, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. But I regret that because it was a very fun game and I, I felt like I got fairly far along and never won it. And I think that, that were, were they to release some sort of, like, Xbox Live version now that I could download and pick up without actually getting a PlayStation 2 and and figuring out how to hook it into my TV, um, I, th- I think I might enjoy it. So <laughs> Matt, in, do you remember my... where
1: <laughs> Oh, so oh, good. I was going to say do you remember where you got or how, why you got Grand Theft Auto San Andreas?
2: <laughs> I don't remember but I have a feeling you do.
1: Yeah, I do. I bought it for you. Uh, I bought it for you uh, specifically on Election Day of 2004. Uh, It came out in the last week of October, and I bought it for you on Election Day 2004 because we were living together at the time, and I bought it because I did not want to spend that night – watching John Kerry lose the presidential election. <laughs> I did not want to watch the election returns. I was very anti-news at the time, and we were living with with John, right, and he loved to watch CNN, and I, I was hoping there was not going to be CNN in the house, so I bought this video game in the hopes that we would be so captivated by the video game that we wouldn't watch the election results on the television. Uh, I was unsuccessful. We did end up watching the election results on the television. It ended up being pretty unpleasant, uh, but um, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas did turn out to be a lot of fun, and I don't regret the the choice of purchasing it i think it might have even been from the virgin mega in times square that i bought it which is where i tended to go to buy uh, movies and video games at the time wow. just for a
2: sense of the virgin mega in times square
1: yeah
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> just for a sense of of like occasion to to really make the purchase feel like a, an event
1: <laughs> yeah well of course and uh, also because it was like a 10 minute walk from our house sure Although, and it was like on my way home yeah, now, from work.
2: now that you mentioned it isn't john Kerry also making a comeback
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Because he's going to hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I that, also that, about that.
2: <laughs> While I may never beat San Andreas, at least something from that night is, is having a, a renaissance yeah, 10 yeah. years later.
1: And you also reminded me of the other time that I went to the Virgin Megastore to buy something very urgently just after it came out, which was when I bought the uncut DVD version of the Chronicles of Riddick at the Virgin Megastore on, like, opening day to bring it yeah. home so that we could watch it.
2: Although, well, just, uh, just a warning for people, if you have the choice between watching the theatrical release and the, the, the director's cut, they really added some things that they shouldn't have added to the director's cuts. We yeah. don't have enough time to get into it. We should really <laughs> do a podcast about the Chronicles of Riddick, which yeah. is amazing. Um, Um, We could do an overview.
1: We could do a whole overview on that movie or just a podcast so people – watch. that would probably
2: be the best idea you've ever had. (laughs) You know they're making a third Riddick movie by the way.
1: They've been saying that for a long time. A third one was – I feel what like like, second, uh, well, you like well, space,
0: Yeah. I mean Chronicles of Riddick was the second one, wasn't it? Right,
1: right, of course, of course. I thought you meant they were just skipping Chronicles of Riddick 2 and oh, going straight to Chronicles to be, of Riddick 3.
0: September
2: 6, 2013. I'm going to I will come to Boston to watch that with you on opening day.
1: Oh, that'd be awesome. Cool, cool, cool.
0: Grand Theft Auto San Andreas or actually no, uh Vice City was the first one no, not Vice City. What was Liberty City was the one where uh was the first video game that I could sort of watch other people play because you know, I don't really play video games because I'm terrible at them. And um and that uh and and so I always watch people play video games. So I spent a lot of time in college for example watching you guys play Mario Kart 64. And that just doesn't have the same thrill as watching, you know, watching you land a plane, jack a Ferrari and run on a virtual treadmill for some reason, you know, change the <laughs> virtual radio stations in the virtual car, right? Like, so that Those was were fir- good radio stations, you know, whoever's in
2: charge of licensing their music really earn their keep.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, can you think of another one before that, that was as much an experience sort of to watch as it was to play?
1: I would say Resident Evil 2. Was probably a big one. Like the Resident Evil ones were, were big video games for watching. I watched a lot of Resident Evil because I never wanted to play it because I hate horror and I get very scared yeah. by it. Um, but I, but watching the Resident yeah. Evil games is actually kind of fun.
2: I mean, uh, I a watched lot a lot of I watched a lot of people playing Final Fantasy VIII, but I wouldn't recommend. Like that was stupid of me. <laughs> <have> done it. <laughs> it's a very boring game because it's basically the 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 thing that enraged people about that game is like like one the most effective way to fight is you. Would like summon these guardian spirits who would then like deliver whoop for you. But summoning the garden of spirits was basically like a, a 30-second long quick time event. Uh, that like never changed, and like you know, to, to the point where like you'd almost rather lose the fight than have to sit through the animation, where like you know, like you shoot your sword and the beam of light goes into the sun, and then like you know, a creature sort of like emerges from like the 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 the, the light and gradually flies to Earth and like stops on the way for directions, and then eventually like you know delivers your two thousand damage points, and by <laughs> by that point you've like come back from the kitchen with your drink and. You're waiting in pace. I don't know. Final Fantasy, a great, great game. Poor, uh,
0: poorly thought out quick time events. (laughs) Pete Fenzel, you are next in the alphabet.
1: You know what? I'm going to keep this one connected. I'm going to say the big one of the biggest thing that happened to me in 2003 was probably you know graduating from college and honestly like moving into New York with Matt Balinki, which was a huge event in my life. Uh, I still remember when we had one chair with one little cushion on it in, in the middle of our empty living room. Uh, that was a lot of fun. But um, what a chair? What a chair, indeed! It was glorious. If
2: that chair could talk, I would have to kill it. <laughs>
1: Oh man. But yeah, I would say move in with friends. I mean, I I I live alone. I moved out on, on my own uh in like last year, like last September before last, to get my own apartment because I I had a friend a Craigslist roommate relationship that wasn't the best and I was kind of tired of it and I was and I didn't want to have another uh I didn't want I didn't want to take on the risk that I was going to have another roommate relationship that didn't work out. So I moved out on my own. It's fine. You know, it's okay. It's good for having company. It's good for having people over. But it really is much more fun to have other people around uh, when, when you're living. And I, I think that one thing I'd love to make a triumphant return to is you know, moving in with friends in a way that I'm really excited about, or at least you know somebody that I, I know and care about. Uh, you know, and that, that I think it's just a way of uh, – overthinking has a way of putting you into your head, and it's good to be able to look around. And, and even if you're talking about the same things with the person you're living with that you would be thinking about if you were by yourself, as was often the case, there's definitely something more affirming about it to be doing it in the presence of other people. So that's what I would say.
0: Sure.
2: Thanks, uh, B. That's, that's very sweet. Yeah. Although, I, I, what I thought you were going to say when you sort of introduced it uh, was either watching or playing Dragon Ball Z.
1: Oh, is that, that's actually the year I discovered Dragon Ball Z too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Are yeah. you going
2: to replace the, the living with friends with watching Dragon Ball Z? It's
1: also the year that I started improv, and because I, I remember that I was wa- I used to watch Dragon Ball Z between work and improv it, when we went to that improv class together on like was it like Thursdays or whatever. Um, and I, I would come home, and I would watch an episode of Dragon Ball Z, and then I would go to improv. I also watched a lot of Quantum Leap and Golden Girls at that time period. So that would nice. the Golden Girls would be a thing to make a triumphant return to. But nice. What I'm saying is, thank you for being a friend, Matt.
0: <laughs> thank you, and, and and thank both of you because I spent you know my fair number of of nights, almost weeks worth of nights, I think, s- sleeping on the the floor of that apartment.
2: Yeah, well, we had, thank you for being a friend. Although you know, uh, if the Santa dress thing proves anything, it's that the size of the present that you bring to the party does not prove how good a friend you are.
1: This is true. This is true.
2: That's one thing I always felt was like wrong about the song.
1: Oh yeah, like the the biggest. it, makes it
2: clear that like who who the biggest gift is is like, and that's that's you know even if, if that were true, that's not you don't want to make it a contest because then like what's the point of having the party if you're just gonna like size up everyone's gifts and then rank them. <laughs> <laughs> have like a leaderboard.
1: You are no bridezilla, sir. <laughs> okay. I suppose yeah. not. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. I'm gonna cancel the leaderboard for the overthinking of fifth anniversary party next weekend.
2: <laughs> we have was like gonna... like a measuring tape for gifts. <laughs> I was gonna bring calculate, a... calculate yep. cubic inches.
1: It's gonna bring an inflatable star lab that we could look at look at uh, constellations <laughs> on the inside of that would take up the bigger part of a high school gymnasium.
0: <laughs> Uh, all right, so mine is um, I'm, I'm mine is going to be a little sad. I think the thing I would most like to make a comeback from 2003 is Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers, who died in
1: 2003. Uh, uh,
0: neighbors,
2: uh. <laughs> yeah, it's like the monkey's paw. Like you don't want to wish that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> speaking. You're- speaking of that, uh, other. I mean, I'm looking at 2003. I guess every every year has a, a bunch of notable uh, celebrity deaths, but it seems like uh, seems like like uh, Johnny Cash, Bob Hope, John Ritter, uh, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, 2003, big year according yeah. to Wikipedia. Nell That's- Carter, star of Give Me a Break. Okay. Uh,
1: Peace be upon her. (laughs) Um,
0: But hey, you know who's back? You know who did make a comeback? Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's
1: right, he did. We saw Terminator 3 in the theater, and I saw the last stand in the theater. He is back with a gap. Or
2: did he, though? I mean, did he really make that comeback?
0: Well, that's, I, I guess I think that's the question that, that, we, want, that we want to answer. Uh, we're not a review show and we don't do summaries. So, Pete, will you summarize The Last Stand for us and, and review it?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, it's an awesome car commercial. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's great. It's a uh, – The Last Stand is – it's a movie about a sheriff who is trying to stop a drug lord from crossing uh, the border near his Arizona town as he escapes imprisonment and prisoner transfer, right? And so it is a funny – somewhat campy but not expendables level campy uh relatively light action movie that's pretty intensely violent and has a lot of car chases and guns uh in fact to the extent that it's really conspicuous it is chevrolet is in force in this movie like to to a far greater degree than any of the transformer movies even to the extent that the cops driving the fords can't catch the bad guy driving the corvette and uh the only way that anyone can catch him in his souped up corvette which is talked about for a great deal of time is for arnold schwarzenegger to take his boss colleagues camaro right so it's like there's like a chevy on chevy chase scene through a cornfield um I would say it's a it's actually a pretty good movie it's a better movie than it has any right to be and um, it's directed by J. Woo Kim, I believe is his name, a uh, relatively noted Korean director. There are some really cool uh, colorful int- visually interesting action sequences it's very meta there's a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about his own career uh, and so there's a fair amount of insight and kind of pathos in the way he's kind of considering the successes and failures of his career during the movie. Um, the biggest problem with the movie other than if you don't like movies like this there's no reason to watch it and other than the fact that if you don't appreciate really stilted dull dialogue that like if you can't under uh, understand why it's there then it's going to be very unpleasant is it's got a very uncomfortable attitude towards firearms especially given the contemporary present moment um it is pretty much the worst movie to come out right after the newtown shooting tragedy uh because it is all about how crazy people stockpiling massive amounts of firearms are our only hope against immigrants and criminals. Um, So it's a very politically and conveniently timed movie. It's not like, um, and I'm not going to come out, and I don't want to go too much one way or the other on like what your particular stand on gun control ought to be, because that's not what this podcast is for, Uh, and I kind of went a little bit too deep on that last week with the torture thing, and I kind of apologize for keeping it too heavy. But the point is that like this movie came out at the wrong time for this movie, because it is like, Johnny Knoxville is a clear a mentally ill guy who clearly has a whole bunch of illegal weaponry, and it's like kind of uncomfortable to watch uh, given the time frame that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, it's like lots and lots of lo- like this movie films cars and guns the way Michael Bay films Megan Fox, like to a huge degree, just like and
0: also cars and guns, mm-hmm.
1: and also cars and guns. That's true. That's true. <laughs> There's the, the, the gun gaze is all over this movie. Um,
0: yeah. We have How- Forrest Picker
1: is in it, uh, Luis Guzman is in it. Um, what are you gonna say, are- Matt?
2: I was curious about the the Johnny Knoxville character that, like you said, he's clearly mentally ill. I mean, how do they play him?
1: He's crazy. He's he's actually not in the movie very much, which is a huge, I think, a huge misfire because he's very much wasted. Um, He has like one bit of business, which is Jackassy, where he tries to climb a telephone pole. He's trying to knock uh, like a telephone pole over to block a street, and there's this piece of business where he climbs to the top of the telephone pole to cut a wire, and then falls a great distance and kind of injures himself. And that's supposed to be the Jackass moment, but it has no sense of whimsy. I mean, he's he wears like goggles and crazy hats. He actually wears the Juxer the Mighty hat. At one point Like if you remember Xena Warrior Princess And Sam Raimi's brother <laughs> right? like, like Isn't that Sam Raimi's brother Right um, Was, was, was Jockster the Mighty And Xena Warrior the Princess This sort of like Like mock epic Camp hero Who would follow around Xena and claim to be A great warrior And kind of had a crush On Gabrielle Like everybody else did Including me at the time uh, And he wore this sort of Weird Spartan hat With like a flared back Um, And no face guard. And so Johnny Knoxville wears uh, that helmet and carries a shield for some portion of this movie while, like, firing a giant, like, uh, like, magnum revolver and or a Gatling gun and or a sword. But his character is so ungrounded, and there's no real reason or motivation for him to do anything. He runs an illegal – a semi-illegal weapons museum, <laughs> and he's pretty much only there to be in like a shot at the beginning of the movie and then to provide the guns at the end of the movie. And he's pretty much wasted and doesn't really have any relationships with anyone. Um, it's kind of it's uh, an unfortunate – it's also – yeah, it would be more characteristic to even frame Louise Guzman as the buddy in this movie or Forrest Whitaker as kind of like the – I don't know, did you see John Q? You guys all, we all saw John Q together back in like 2003, I think, right? Or 2002.
2: I mean, all I remember is, is how's it going to end, John Q, and John Q does not know how it's going to end.
1: Exactly. So John Q is a propaganda movie about socialized medicine. It takes place in a hospital where John Q takes a bunch of hostages. He's this worker in Detroit, takes my hostages. And there's this whole subplot where Ray Liotta and Robert Duvall are like the, the grizzled cops who are kind of managing the cops outside. And they just have this inane banter where they're just like, you know, you were in this agency and we hate you and, and, and we're not getting along. And, like, you know, like, and it's like, why, why can't we get the things that we want out of this Department, and it's just totally a waste of time. <laughs> Do they uh, call it a cop department? I <laughs> think <laughs> so. Is that, I, I don't think this is the movie. Was it really on a inoperative? I'm trying to remember the movie where one one guy says to the other, like, what does alcohol, tobacco, and firearms stand for? Like, or or ATF stand for? Alcohol, tobacco, and bleep-ups! You know, and it's like that kind of attitude. And, like, Forrest Whitaker plays that character in this movie, where he's like, I'm a cop who runs a police department that isn't going to succeed, and I'm going to be kind of upset about it. Um, And he's kind of like, he's sort of like the antithesis to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's like the country guy with a lot of weapons, who doesn't really trust authority, and doesn't like Los Angeles, and likes the country, and guns, and and shooting Mexicans sort of it's really uncomfortable politically Um, here's the
2: thing that i was i was curious about you mentioned the fact that there's like a bunch of sort of semi-autobiographical stuff in here is that like doesn't the movie begin where arnold schwarzenegger is a los angeles cop so he's in california and then he has like he, he has to leave in disgrace like he somehow fails or else he's a scapegoat for things that go wrong and then he's sort of like you know he he retires i mean like this is this is secondhand knowledge but is that the case
1: That's not quite what it is. Well, first of all, it's not in the movie. It's relayed not even through flashbacks, but through people talking about it during the movie. It starts with Arnold Schwarzenegger sort of settled down in the, in the town when all of the other people in the town are leaving to go to the high school state championships, which very conveniently leaves the town leaves the town nearly empty in order to have automatic weapon gunfights without killing. It's like
2: anybody. the greatest episode of Friday Night Lights ever.
1: Yeah, pretty, much, pretty. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, and no, and but he talks about it. He he was a narcotics cop in the eighties, and uh, it's not that he got scapegoated for something. He he his, he went on some sort of mission against some drug dealers and every other cop on the mission was killed except for him but the mission was still successful and he won the medal of valor and he was really commended for it but he retired because he can't handle like the violence anymore he was just too traumatized by it and he talks about how like like there's a scene where the sort of bright eyed uh, girl cop who in this movie is played by somebody whose name I have to look up because um, (laughs) Jamie Alexander uh, Jamie Alexander, whom you may know from Thor uh, and also from Kyle XY, uh, is, is in this movie. And <laughs> she like, comes to him and she talks about how scared she is about the impending gunfight with the Mexican drug lord. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is like, I'm more scared because I've seen so much blood and death in my life. Right? It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger is kind of thinking back about all of the – People he's had to machine gun down and Commando and Terminator and all those other movies and he just can't handle it anymore. That's why he got out of the game is he just had to – he saw so much death. Um, It's almost like the rundown except like more sincere and kind of sad. But it's
2: weird because of course like the movie doesn't share that viewpoint and the viewers really aren't meant to share that viewpoint. Not really. It's definitely no. I mean, like the movie is definitely like bring on the gun violence. Yeah. <laughs> to you know, it's a, not yeah, like, it, isn't it sad that it's come to this?
1: <laughs> it's kind of. I mean, it's called the Last Stand, right? So there is a certain amount of tragedy to it. Uh, and He's, so there, is there a certain amount of tragedy to it. There totally is. There totally is.
2: Does he, uh, die like, the end? Does he like you know? Is this is this like he all he wanted to do is retire in peace, and instead he has to die in a hell of gunfire because yeah, it, like you got to stand for something, or else like it was all it was all those people died in vain back in the eighties.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. He, the ending scene is he, he's fighting the Mexican drug lord, fist fighting the Mexican drug lord and he he stabs the Mexican drug lord with a with a with an uh Bowie knife and the Mexican drug lord like slashes his femoral artery and the last thing he says is the lost is silence, and then he perishes. Uh, the the rest is silence. Um, yeah, he doesn't die. He perishes. He perishes, and then it's like Louise Guzman. Tell my story when everybody gets here. Um, like Johnny Knoxville. Uh, there's more. There's more than heaven and earth than dreamed of by your jackassery, Johnny Knoxville. No,
2: in terms of the semi autobiographical thing, does he have a wife?
1: Uh, no. Actually, I'm not sure why that isn't mentioned in the movie as far as I remember. It's possible it's mentioned and he just never, met, never talks about it or that she died or something. But uh, no, he's totally single and lonely. Um, yeah it's very like rocky balboa ish like he has sort of brief conversations with younger women that could turn flirtatious but the filmmakers are wise enough not to really push it in that direction Um, and so there's a sort of additional amount of pathos in that kind of choice which also leads to another problem with the movie in terms of it being marketable is that there's like no sexuality in this movie at all and very little that's sort of like uh, uh, it's all like power fantasy and no titillation Right, like the it's, the, eight, right. the it's, it's not a four kind of quadrant
2: fun. movie. At, at best, it's two quadrants, and apparently, apparently none. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not not to give away something from later on the podcast, but like apparently, this movie is a, a genuine bomb. Uh, opened in tenth place this weekend. Um, yeah, with it's with like of, six which is, I
0: mean, which is admittedly higher than I've ever opened a movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: no. I mean, like. Let's let's do the caveat that like none of us have over you know have, have made not...
1: or starred in a major. <laughs> no, no,
0: no, no, that's not a serious objection, Matt. That's that. I, I mean, it's really in bad faith for me to say so. For me to say something like that. Hook,
1: life. Hook won the box office weekend when it opened, right, Matt? <laughs> 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 when you were like the voice of singing child number three and Hook?
0: Or I, yes, I was indeed the voice of singing child number three and Hook. It's not even on my IMDb page because there are no credits for the voice for being the soundtrack for of singing child number three but um yeah uh there's uh well i mean this is this is an interesting thing i mean like why so so are are the problems i mean peter the problems here like the 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 poor box office performance um is it like uh is it the wrong the wrong vehicle for Arnold is it just a bad movie is it i mean is it you were talking about problems with marketability you know mm-hmm. or i mean and by bad movie i mean you you clearly painted a more nuanced picture than that but i mean does it just not clear the bar for all of that as a you know as a what an action movie for for people to go see is it not clear who the audience is
1: i think so i think it's not clear why this movie is i mean it is I, I don't want it to be clear why this movie is being made now, but it feels like it is clear why this movie is being made now, and it's not being made for good reasons, <laughs> right? Like, like I feel like the movie is made – it's a very – it feels like on its face it's going to be a very politically conservative movie about how you shouldn't take away people's guns, right? And about how like the Mexicans are going to take over Arizona Well, because who is the most famous Arizona sheriff, Right? Like, the idea of an Arizona sheriff who wants to shoot Mexicans is kind of a real thing, right? Right um, right now. And it's kind of like Joe, 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 Joe Arpeo, Is that his name? or uh, something, I something along those lines. I shouldn't even say that, because I might get the wrong guy, and I apologize. He's an gentleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to go one way or the other on his, on his career, but, like, it's like a very specific sort of political stance, and it's not one that overlaps very heavily with Hollywood. Um, so I felt like when they were handed off this idea for a movie, that's kind of what it was for. Also, Forrest Whitaker as the black federal bureaucrat who always wears a blue shirt and a blue tie and people make kind of disparaging comments about a lot is also like – I felt that was kind of political to an extent. Um, and again, I'm trying not to pass judgment on it. But it's like I think the reason the movie was made now was because there was a perception that there are a lot of people out there who are kind of ready for the backlash – Right, they're like ready for this political macho backlash against things becoming too feminine or too, you know, like minority focused or something, and that a country sheriff hero is really what it's gonna to take to turn this thing around. Ooh, um, I think that that misjudges the landscape right now. I think it's, it's kind of insulting because I think it, it insults both political conservatives who, have a, who believe in these things because their positions are often more personal and nuanced than that. Uh, and it also kind of like – it just isn't true. It's just not where things are right now politically and, and mm. marketing-wise. I mean when you think about the movies of the 80s – and I think this is kind of a, a juicy subject if you guys want to talk about it too. Think about like Rambo, right? Think about Commando. Think about um, even Conan the Barbarian. You know what's America's relationship with violence at this point in our history, uh, and I and I mean this in, in not just in a political sense, but in a marketing and pop culture sense, right? Like like Top Gun, right? It's that like we're supporting this massive military infrastructure. Um, we're very gung ho about our opposition to the Soviets uh, around the world. Uh, there's this sense that we have this, this mandate to protect innocent people uh, who can't protect themselves because they don't have the technology or resources. And it's really important for us in principle to com- be committed to fighting the necessary fights, to fighting the good fights, right? And that that's what these action movies are about. Even the fight against, the fight against crime, the fight against drugs. You know, when like, when, like uh, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover go out there and team up to take down the drug dealer, it's really important that they do it right like we all hate the drug dealer and we're happy and like these the reason that there's tension in the movie is because these are guys who aren't going to get along but they have to get along because you have to stop the drug dealer or you have to stop the apartheid south africans right or like you have to like win the vietnam war like rambo does in rambo 2 right like you have to mm. like heal these national wounds and i don't and, and like that's what excuses the tremendous amount of violence and inhumanity that's in these films is that it's the, the surface of something that people generally believe to be good Um, people don't watch action movies because they're violent, awful people. They watch action movies because they want to have a power fantasy and want to feel cheered on about conquering the problems that they're encountering in their everyday life. And I think that one of the big failures of The Last Stand is that it doesn't really resonate with a problem that people are actually having right now. It isn't, even if it were about people shooting immigrants which it isn't even though it kind of looks like it's going to be that way at times where it's a little bit awkward Uh, in fact Arnold even comes out and says like you give immigrants a bad name like immigrants like us a bad name or us immigrants like he self-identifies as an immigrant that's interesting yeah like they really step away from where it looks like it's going to go like from the log line of it yeah Um, The Arizona sheriff stopping the Mexican drug lord from crossing the border. Uh, And they really step away from it and create a movie that's much more nuanced than that. But really I don't think the bad guy in this movie is one that people really care about seeing defeated right now sure right like 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 if he were going into northern mexico and stopping the violence in northern mexico that would be something different because that's a problem that people are aware of right yeah. and that's sort of like a vic mackey solution to an arnold schwarzenegger problem yeah. right like um, but it's that, like
2: that was basically the plot of the fast and the furious 4 i think right
1: oh uh, probably i actually did not see fast and the furious 4 which is unfortunate
2: are you sure? it's not, not bad is, mean, is that faster and furious
1: was it Fast and I feel
2: Furious? like that one is just They've really tried to make the titles As complicated as possible <laughs> That one is Fast and Furious As opposed to the first movie in the series Which was The Fast and The Furious
1: Right, right, right So it's it's a, um, uh, it's a an adjectival title Rather than a noun phrase title I'd
2: really love to be part of the meeting Where they discuss the possibilities there And decided that that was the way they wanted to go right. I mean, you can't argue with success but mm-hmm. But I would still like to be in that meeting yeah. Baby, baby, um, when
0: you talk about comparative and superlative adjectives, it's <laughs> got to be fastest and furiousest. <laughs> furiousest? Where did you go to school, Harvard? It's got to be most furious, most fast and most furious. Well, it can't be fastest and most furious. That's, yeah, that's, that would be a funny meeting to be inside yeah. of, yeah.
2: I think if I, I were compare- it <laughs> out, it's not. It's not over, it's an ongoing
1: discussion. I think if I were to compare the last 10 to a consumer product, I would compare it to the Segway in the sense that it's like, oh, this guy who's really great is, has been building up that he's going to make this thing, and he's been talking about it for a long time, and it's been a long time. There's a lot of suspense, and he's going to do this thing, and it's going to come out, and, and, he's, and, and it's going to be a commercial consumer product, and he comes out with the Segway. It's not like the Segway is a bad product in the sense that it's not poorly designed, really. It, it works. It sort of does what it's supposed to do, right, which is carry around mall cops and let and people tour the Washington Mall for a couple dollars. But it's like, the thing is that it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with people in the sense of a problem that they think they have, right? It doesn't, like, address a problem that people think they have. It's like an innovation in search of a use, right? And, and we could even talk a little bit about that, and like, innovation. What is innovation if it's not useful? What is innovation if people don't actually want it? It's just cleverness, Right. And so, like, you can execute an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, but if it's not an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that, that it resonates in some way with something that people really want to see – like, think about, I mean, kindergarten cop, right? Why would people see that? Because they care about children, right? These are – because the audience is having kids. They're at the age where they're having kids. The baby boomers are, are you know, – are, they're are parents now, and, and they're looking back on their younger days, and they kind of want to see themselves as, as heroic and, and masculine dudes um, while still being parents, right? Why, why do you make, like um, – Gosh, like, like uh, the sixth day, right? Like, even if you make the sixth day, why do you make that? Well, you make that because cloning is happening, right? And like, Dolly the sheep is happening, and, P- and genetic engineering is happening, and it's a public anxiety that people yeah. have. Why do you make? I
2: don't know, know why of- you make. And end of days, right, is about the, the apocalypse, right? Literally <laughs> well, about like the apocalypse.
1: Yeah, exactly. But end of days was made in nineteen ninety nine, right before the millennium. And there was oh an- yeah,
2: that's good. Uh, yeah. It's for the same reason that they made that 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 series with Lance Hendrickson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> with the Oroboros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Millennium. So like, it's, it's like if you look back at the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, they happen for occasions, right? Like they 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 happen for reasons, you know. Like um, and and it's and it's and, it, and they they resonate with something that's happening with people now. Uh, I'm trying. To, I want to look back at some of the other ones, you know. Like I mean, I mean Terminator is in the 80s and it's sort of a lot of Terminator is about 80s party culture and what it's like to be a single woman in the 80s and to sort of feel victimized and at risk from the men around you, right? And then like and again Terminator 2 is another parenting movie. True Lies is is about um sort of the the it's one of the many sort of spy movies that came out in the post Cold War era where it's sort of like do we still need spies? What role do they have? You know, is it can you go back similar to the the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible movie? You know, like um I mean, why do they make Batman and Robin? I don't even know. That's not even worth seeing, doing it. Um, but yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> but I mean, that's not um, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It's, no, it's, not it's, really. You know, when I try to imagine The Last Stand, you know, a movie like sort of pops into my head is uh, Tremors.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, t- t- Tremors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, go ahead, go ahead.
2: because like part of it is about like it's it's set in this sort of like almost like fantasy version of like the the modern day american west this sort of small town where like everybody's full of folksy wisdom and the 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 vistas are beautiful and you know everyone drives a pickup truck and there's a lot of there's a lot of dust and it's all sort of like uh tinted and and bright sunshine but it's also I'm, i'm thinking of one scene in particular where there's a couple of uh of I, I this is the way I remember them, is the survivalists, right? And they're they're stockpiling guns and maybe they're always talking about, you know, how how society is gonna go to hell and, and civilization is gonna collapse and they're the only ones who are gonna be ready. I remember the woman is played by Reba McIntyre. I don't, right, I don't right. know who plays the man. Um and then there's this it's, scene it's Michael, where Michael
1: Michael Gross. Michael Gross of uh a Family Ties fame, the father from Family Ties.
2: Really? Wow, yes. Yeah, Interesting. Um, but then here's the deal. So like there's there's a scene where like you know these, these worms which are, you know, at this point they seem like undefeatable and their their powers seem to, 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 to beggar the imagination, right? That that like they're they can do anything and we don't even know the, the scope of their 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 capabilities. And they're coming right for the survivalists. And I, th- I I remember them like getting on the phone and being like, You have to get out of there, these things are coming for you and there's no way that you can stop them. And the survivalists are like, We have lots of guns, so we're pretty much Fine And they get out the guns And there's this crazy scene Where the worm Pops through the wall And the survivalists uh, Begin to shoot them With a series of guns Escalating in power I believe ending In some sort of Like a If not a rocket launcher Some sort of Massive shotgun And they kill the worm The worm just dies um, <laughs> And everyone just Sort of has this moment And I remember Like watching it Even at a fairly Young, young age Of like enjoying the scene Because I feel like It sort of uh, Subverted your expectations That you expect it to be One of these things Where like o- Almost like in the movie Like Aliens Where they make a big deal About sh- Showing you how well supplied and how great the weapons of this team is only to show you how easily that the aliens just cut through them uh, and that like you know whatever it is they think they're ready for they're not ready for this and what this scene shows is like these survivalists these, these almost like you know semi paranoid crazy people living in the American West are actually very well prepared for whatever the threat is that's coming from from beyond the border or from like you know this this alien other. That, that that's going to sneak up on us one day and that they were right all along and that everyone else is the ones being naive.
1: Yeah, and I, I think this movie could do that. But I think the way that Johnny Knoxville is portrayed is a lot more incompetent than that. I mean, it, it, you know what I think about this and I think about the Independence Day and I think about the top 10 Independence Day article I wrote all those years ago <laughs> where the, I think one of the big ones is like, you know, crazy people are our greatest natural resource right in the United States that we have this like vast array of like eccentrics that we allow to follow their free freedom and their dreams and then at times when we don't expect it they turn out to to be there and i think that um if you think about, well, why is Tremors exist? Uh, well, maybe it's about social change, and it's about the, how the world was changing in 1990, and it's about how, like, people are anxious about the the ground beneath our feet shifting, right? And so there's an anxiety where people think the world makes sense, and then these these monsters come, right? And it's like, oh, no, the world doesn't make sense. And there's a, there's a – the character of sort of the crazy person who can fight the monsters – is like this is comforting because people don't make sense either and that's kind of oddly comforting too it's like we think that we're sane in a crazy world but it's actually comforting to think a lot of us are, are actually crazy in a crazy world which is kind of a better position to be in it's like the beetlejuice question right it's like you'd rather have beetlejuice around if you're going to be dealing with the undead even if he's a little bit unsightly because like he sort of operates on their level um, yeah. I like it's the affirming.
2: silver linings playbook, right? Because <laughs> I, I feel like the point of that is like at first you have like this one character and like he's crazy and he's trying to integrate into a society where people are not crazy. But then when yeah. it gradually comes out is like everybody is a little bit obsessive compulsive and everybody's a little bit and even your therapist is maybe a little bit crazy. Yeah. Um, oh, so so you know, it's it's more of a continuum of craziness.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love one of the things I love about that movie is how um How people are happy with how things work out, (laughs) right? Because, like, the at the end of I mean I don't I guess spoilers for the Silver Linings playbook the couple gets together right in the romantic comedy um, but it's like at the end of the movie you have like an unemployed 36 year old dating like a 21 year old widow who clearly has emotional problems and it's like this this should be uh, one of the reasons perhaps why the movie has taken a while to gain traction is that it's not really clear that this is something that we want to have happen right like like why do we want Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence to get together like that seems like something we should be against um, but it the framing of the way of like the way the world of the movie is painted this is like something that people can generally be excited about because it's so much better than what they have generally right like it's like the (laughs) world is already so emotionally scarred and like things are already kind of like so messed up like the dad is this bookie who clearly is going to ruin himself at some point you know and like the mom is just sort of like holding on for dear life and trying to make things work you know like they have buddies who keep escaping from the mental hospital just sort of showing up whenever they want and it's like oh Like he's dating somebody who's fifteen years his junior. You know what? That's kind of (laughs) nice. Like that's that's like a nice thing.
2: Yeah, good for both of them. You know,
1: exactly. Exactly. And I feel like that matches up to reality a little bit too. Because how many how many of us don't have friends who are in a couple that just seems absurd, right? Like you know, and it's like how many people don't have that kind of thing where there's something in your life that you feel like is not quite right or shouldn't really be that way. But when you step back with a bit more of a kind of like forgiving attitude about the human condition, it's actually pretty awesome you know um, and, and we can you, feel lucky um, for that Pete can
2: I ask you a, a quick, quick question,
1: question about my girlfriend <laughs> Aww.
0: Oh. Can
2: I ask you like a question? It's a little bit of a tangent, but it's related because I I like this idea that like movies come along for a reason, and that it's not like this movie was greenlit just because it happened to land on top of a pile on the day where they had extra money. It's yeah. it's because like it, it resonates with something that's true. I went to see uh, I went to see The Hobbit uh, a month or two ago, and there were two back to back trailers for movies about the Earth has become uninhabitable and is now an insanely dangerous place that like we want to flee as soon as it's humanly possible. One is the Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion, and the other is the Will Smith movie, uh, I believe it's called After Earth, which right. I'm a little indignant about because I am the only big fan in the world of the animated film Titan
1: AE. Oh, is that um, based on that? Is it, are they, no, the it's same... completely no. unrelated.
2: Oh, okay. like there already <laughs> is a movie basically called After Earth. Um, right. Or that, that's, that sort of mine that territory. And they're both about, like... You know, everybody is abandoned Earth, and we find ourselves sort of stranded there, and now we have to deal with, like, the many, many dangers of, like, a planet that is no longer inhabited by human beings. And, right. like, literally the trailers were back-to-back. And there was, like, this sort of, like, confused undercurrent in the theater. Because, it, like, they they really did seem conspicuously similar. Uh, right. and, I mean, not, not just the, the thematic material, but almost, like, the way they looked. And the fact that they're, like, sort of A-list movie stars... That were sort of like you know uh, are, are sort of uh, surrogates in this in this environment, and so like you know I feel like it doesn 't say anything good about the sort of state of the world, the fact that like you know people can sort of like readily wrap their head around the fear or the the idea that like you know, the, the, the world is going to be like a plate, you know, like, like is, is going straight downhill. And we could easily sort of see ourselves having to, like, just basically ditch civilization and start again somewhere else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, like, what, what do I think about that? Is that the question?
2: Oh, I don't know. I just, I just thought that it, in terms of. It, well, yeah. I mean, it, I have a, the I have a pretty, I have a,
1: I have a pretty strong reaction to it, and I think it's related to what movie you're watching when you go to see it. So, The Hobbit, right? So, yeah. the, what is what is something else that happened ten years ago? The Return of the King came out ten years ago, right? Uh, that came out in two thousand three, and so the reason they made The Hobbit is because the people who loved The Return of the King when it came out uh, are now old enough to have children. And thus The Hobbit is the sort of PG-ish adaptation of, of that franchise so that you can bring your kids to it, right? You can bring your kids to go see The Hobbit. Uh, and that's, that's the, the hope is that, like, we've gone long enough. And it feels like it might be a little early, but, like, we've gone long enough that those people can go see this movie. Now, what's the situation for these people? These people who are, you know, in their 30s, have kids... Uh, in this particular economy, it's, it's, there's this sense that that American economic strength is deteriorating uh, and that there's this sense that um, that the privilege that they've enjoyed and that their parents enjoyed might be something that their kids might not enjoy. And, and if you combine that with the fact that there's this increased you know, anxiety around the environment and about around global warming or climate change or whatever you want to call it, I think that people are scared for their kids. Um, I think that they're scared that when their kids grow up, there aren't going to be jobs, there isn't going to be clean water, like, there aren't going to be these things that we've taken for granted. Uh, and I think that if you were to make an apocalypse movie now, that's what I would focus on. I, I would, f- and really, again, I'm Amerigo-centric in this. Like, looking, a lot of these movies also do very well overseas. And I know that some parts of the world haven't suffered as much as most, but, you know, Europe, certainly. Uh, they must be having anxieties in much of Europe about their standard of living and whether the next generation is going to be able to share in the standard of living. Keep in mind that, you know, unemployment among the young is extremely high and has been sustained high for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. Like ten years, it's been depression era levels, Uh, you know, because there's just, you know, the skilled, unskilled labor. There's not the demand for for the kids who are going to go to college or whatever, or even any kids to be doing work. Um, That's what I would say it's about. That's what I. It's like, what about my children? Except like these are people who are nerds, right? they like they like sci-fi and they like like fantasy and and they have kids that they're scared about, and so it's like, okay, well we'll show them a father son movie about the apocalypse. Right. Um, and that, that's my sense. That's, like, my gut reaction, my conjecture. Hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, I also it's would point out that one of the great things about Titan AE is it's from the Summer of Creed, where, like, three different movies used higher in their trailers. Oh, yeah. Um.
2: You basically <laughs> oh, weren't allowed to make a trailer without sticking a little higher in there. Yeah, the um, skulls. Yeah, exactly. You know what's interesting is that Will Smith makes a lot of movies about the apost- – if you think about, like, Independence Day, um, yeah. I Am Legend, I, Robot – Mm. He's, like, he's like a good sort of like a uh, tour guide through like civilization collapsing and like he's going to see you through the wreckage.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if that has to do with, with race at all. Because, I mean, what is the other notable thing about Will Smith other than he's, like, a hugely successful actor who, who uh, makes all this money is, like, he's one of the biggest uh, black stars in Hollywood, like, black leading men, right? Like, more, yeah. even more than Samuel L. Jackson, right, who's a character actor for the most part, right? Uh, I mean, not for the most part. Maybe more than a character actor. But still, like, Will Smith is, like, the big leading face of so many of these big movies. And, it, and there's certainly a sense that, like, if you want to think about the African-American experience, that society kind of has collapsed to an extent or that you have to fight back against a societal collapse, Right. Like you, have to, like, you know, the people around you and the situation around you might not be great, um, but you're, you have to survive and you have to build your legacy. You have to do what you can. Right. Like, yeah.
2: um, I- you know, it's, it's for some reason, like, as soon as you said that, I'm sort of thinking of like Denzel Washington's what what I'm thinking of is like his sort of biggest attempt to be like a big budget, you know, blockbuster action star, which is uh, the book of Eli.
1: Big remake you know I mean? attempt, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, look, he he does a lot of movies which are like you know, uh, great acting toward the forces. Of course, flight being his most recent, but that's what I'm thinking of like he didn't take that because it's got such a meaty part. He took it because he he gets to use kung fu and like beat people up and in the post apocalyptic wasteland. Right, right, um, right. I don't know. Could be. A, I mean, like, there's a lot of post apocalyptic yeah, movies true. nowadays, which I is the whole the point.
0: Didn't hurt. Also, <laughs> it
2: probably didn't. Anyone see that movie? That's very strange. There's a lot going on there.
1: No, I didn't see Book of Eli. I missed it. I wanted because it's about the Bible, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, like, like they—you could watch the trailer without sort of like it making clear, but like it's—it's it's a pretty overtly religious movie mm-hmm. about how like the word of God can like redeem civilization, pretty much. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um,
2: you know, like he—he he is like the last keeper of like you know the the, the Book of Eli is the Bible. He's right. he is Eli. Um, how
1: did how did, it, how did Book of Eli do commercially?
2: That's an interesting. So I'm wondering question. I'm sure whether, the knows.
1: Yeah, whether the threat to the Bible is something that people like resonated with. It made 94 million dollars domestic uh, and 62 million dollars foreign. So global, worldwide gross of 157 million dollars, a 32 million dollar opening weekend. So there's something about that. There's something about about Denzel Washington kind of like protecting the Bible against you know an evil post-apocalyptic, you know, uh, basically yeah, against hope. Cormac McCarthy, right? <laughs> like, it's like Denzel Washington versus Cormac McCarthy um, on the road or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, I guess, because it would it come out around the same time as the road movie with, with Viggo Mortensen? Um, yeah, like, well, you after. Somebody,
2: somebody remind me, by the way, I really wanted to do and I know nobody would care now because nobody really cared about the road. I really wanted to do like a, like a trailer for the road that was just going to use the fastball song The Road. If anyone way, remembers that song. The Way?
1: The Way? Is
2: there I thought a it was called The Road. road. No?
1: I thought the big, the big fastball hit was The Way. Where are they going without even knowing The Way? I
2: thought that was called The Road for some reason. But if the road it's, that it's, they
1: walk on is paved with gold. It's always summer. They'll never get old, cold. No, you're right. You know
2: what? I'm glad you pointed that out. It's a stupid yeah. idea. Should have done it. Um, I'm <laughs> glad I didn't spend all that time recutting that.
1: There are so um, many songs about roads. You don't have to pick there one. There
2: It's almost like it's a great metaphor for something. Something. There's
1: a path you take and a path not taken, and the choice <laughs> is up to you, my friend. Um, An open road and a road that's hidden to a brand new life around the bend. And there were times that I lost a dream or two, but I found a trail, and at the end was you.
2: <laughs> let me be, before we completely run out of time, I wanted to talk about what it means that Arnold
0: Schwarzenegger can no longer open. Thank you. I've been sitting on this. I've been sitting on this segue for (laughs) forever because you you mentioned, you mentioned, I I didn't want to steal your segue. So 20 minutes ago, you mentioned A-list movie stars and I've just been like, just been waiting. So, so Matt, can you just say the phrase, can you tee me up? Can you say the phrase A-list movie stars?
2: Yeah. So speaking of Alist, no wait, something about like Alist. So and I you re- just you just pooped all
0: over my segue there. Thank <laughs> you very much. Thank <laughs> you, you for setting set up your segue. <laughs> speaking of Alist, movie stars. Okay. <laughs> probably doesn't deserve. <laughs> Let's go home.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's finish. This is what we wanted to talk sure. about. This is like the topic that we wanted to talk
0: about. Yeah. This is right when we were planning. I mean, when we were planning this. Um, yeah finally, an hour later, we actually get to the point, which is... (laughs) That, right. Arnold
2: Schwarzenegger, like, you know, up until last week, there was uh, certainly a a way of thinking about him that he's the once-in-a-future action king of Hollywood, right? That he's the greatest action star that ever has been. He left... Arguably, if not at the top of his game, certainly as being like one of the most bankable action stars in Hollywood, Terminator 3 was certainly not a failure, if not, not anyone's favorite Terminator movie. I don't, I don't want to meet anyone who's favorite Terminator movie, um, although it looks great compared to Terminator Salvation. But then like now he looks like the poor man's Liam Neeson.
1: You oh, I- wow. That's a right. that is a that is a quite yeah I guess I mean in the sense
2: yeah or, or or look at it this way that like you know when when Sylvester Stallone who's really been been out there working it you know trying to make a, a career and and at the age of sixty five. Um, You know, made The Expendables, and Arnold Schwarzenegger makes this big cameo in it, and it's very, you know, like, when he enters the room, he enters, you know, like, silhouetted in the door. Part of it is that, like, he was actually the governor at that point. He hadn't been seen in movies, so that, like, his cameo is special. But it's also, like, at least, like, to me watching that movie, it's like, Arnold Schwarzenegger was... At a high, uh, in a different league than even uh, Sylvester Stallone, that Arnold Schwarzenegger is, like, you know, you know, he's, he's the king. He's the godfather. And that, like, him being in that movie is, like, a favor to Sylvester Stallone. And you get the feeling, like, they're actually starring in a movie together next year. It's called The Tomb. And I believe, I'm actually looking forward to this. It's a prison movie where Sylvester Stallone is a prison architect. <laughs> Wait, I'm gonna try to say that laughing. He's a prison architect who is imprisoned in, in his own prison, and, and Schwarzenegger is like the top criminal in that prison. And I'm—I swear to God, this was a TV show on Fox, but I'm not completely sure about that. It's like
1: Daedalus and the Minotaur team up to get out of a labyrinth, basically. But I, I guess I'm just—I guess I'm just saying. They're,
2: they're, there was a, a legitimate argument to be had last week about, like, who is a more bankable action star, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. And now it appears that that argument is as maybe – I guess I'm not – you know, I, I hate to say that one data point is a, is a
0: definitive argument. Yeah, I mean it's, it's not like he's never had a uh, – you know, never had a, a bad film before. Like, you remember Last Action Hero?
2: But, I mean, this is a $6 million opening weekend for, like, a a movie that opened on 3,000 screens. Okay,
0: so I want to say a couple things about that, right? Because, like, like, this is... this is a, a conversation that you and I have had before, and it used to be that I would say, "Yeah, but Matt, they make their money on DVDs," and that is no longer the case. They don't make any damn money on DVDs uh, because of these kids with their internets, or you know what have you that don't that don't want the DVDs. Um, but where they make money is is foreign sales now, right? Like that, like right, Battleship, you know, made money. Like uh, it, it actually made its money overseas. I think before it even opened in the United States, so it was like uh, you know there was no way. Um it's not like Star Wars where the film wouldn't need to sell a single ticket to make money with all the licensing deals and and uh you know merchandise and stuff like that 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 was in place around uh, all of the Star Wars prequels before they before they even opened you know they were they were turning a profit but but it is it is like there is this huge sort of emerging uh, film going market outside the United States, especially in Asia. And so, right, like, I think a, a Korean director, right, and I think that the use of a, uh, like a big, um, a big American action star, because though, though, um, in America, right, like our tastes seem to be shifting, uh, and I think that has to do with two things. I think it has to do with our attitude towards youth and our attitude towards novelty. Uh, around the world, they can't, um, they can't get enough, you know, American American action stars. So, like, I I think the jury, I think we got to say though, yeah, it's probably an embarrassment. It's it's more a black eye, right? Than than uh, I don't know, than sort of killing the movie, right? Like, it's it's more a, a an embarrassment or a sort of reputation thing. Um, I I think we got to reserve judgment on this until we see how it does how it does worldwide because it strikes me that this is probably uh, this is probably a film. Um, that is that where at least parts of it are conceived, uh, though it doesn't sound like the plot really, though, at least parts of, uh, parts of it, the, the director, the, the, uh, star are conceived with an eye towards a worldwide audience.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I also think that, that, you know, going back to the golden age of Hollywood, it was all based on like the star system that like stars open movies, people would go see John Wayne in whatever, And it almost didn't really matter what he was in, as long as you could put him on the poster. And now, obviously, more and more it's becoming about franchises and about IP. And about, like, people will go see Avatar 2, and it will make a billion dollars. Even though I don't think anyone's so excited about Sam Worthington that they went to see Man on a Ledge or or whatever else. You know, Sam Worthington, I would say,
1: yeah, go on. I was going to say, interesting enough, I was just looking, Man on Ledge by the same producer as The Last Stand. Uh, and also opened, like, really crappily and did very poorly um, uh, in the theaters as well. And actually has the same... the fem- One of the female actresses from Man on Ledge is one of the major characters in The Last Stand, too. So there's a definite connection between these two movies. Oh, Both in that they also have about the scope of a, of an episode of television.
0: It all, I mean, um, it also seems to me that... I mean, and I think there's been some, some study done about this or some surveys or something recently that I can't call to mind right now. But it seems like director... Uh, is is becoming is continuing to to like be an important category right like it's it 's not just avatar it 's james cameron 's avatar and the idea that like that James Cameron was this sort of visionary director and sort of technologically visionary director behind this thing, it almost kind of didn't matter what the story is. And well, I mean, when it turned out that the story was this sort of really overly sentimental, you know, kind of melodramatic thing, this sort of John Smith Pocahontas story. Sexy um, cats. <laughs> sexy cats with boobs. the Right, like, the, no, it, it, it had something that, the, that this sort of Titanic audience could sink its teeth into, right, like, uh, as well well right uh, that that kind of sentimental story but it it the the leading up to it it was like no james cameron is like finding a new way to make movies and i think that the the story with peter jackson and the hobbit is is very similar you feel like you feel like you know there's a peter jackson behind uh, are we going to be in are we going to be in in good hands i mean the the same thing with quentin tarantino right the, 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 the people going to
2: see the hobbit are not all fans of sherlock
0: Right.
1: <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> in a sense that that's the actor. That right. I I mean,
2: but that's, that's what I'm saying is that like okay. it wasn't like we need like a big name star to anchor the Hobbit. No, the, the Hobbit anchors the Hobbit. But also like Peter Jackson's the because obviously it, he Peter Jackson was not supposed to be the director. For a time he wasn't. And you got to figure that like some of the impetus to get him back in the director's chair. Maybe they didn't like go where Guillermo del Toro was going with it, but clearly they felt like – Peter Jackson's The Hobbit was more marketable Than Guillermo del Toro's The
0: Hobbit I thought, I, I did not follow the ins and outs Of that, but I thought that that He left to make Mama Right, like but uh but, but I mean, he, he may have he been shown the door i you was know. supposed to
2: direct it and, and he wanted to direct it and I, I i don't remember the details of it but i think it was it was either either they they didn't like the direction he was going and the producers sort of forced him out or else they really always wanted peter jackson and gilbert torre was sort of and and they eventually managed to convince peter jackson to take over and then they dumped gilbert torre on the
0: second yeah i mean you know you never really know with these things even though everybody knows everything you know about the business now because of the internet right you never really you know, because there's so much, um, kind of storytelling that, you know, that goes on around, around the PR around these things. So who, who knows what happened with that, but like the, the end result, I, you know, right. I think we can say was that, you know, you had the sense, you had this sort of sense of an auteur behind, um, mm. you know, behind the camera sort of, uh, sort of uh, you know i don't know sort of making it i mean pete you you actually saw the movie are there parts of it i mean even just like uh, relentless violence or something like that that strike you as being attuned to uh to a global audience
1: oh totally And, and as you've been talking about it everything's been flashing into my head definitely it really feels like an asian crime drama in a lot of ways um the most notable scene of this type And this is probably the best scene in the movie uh, in terms of just a, a really interesting filmmaking scene is that there's a car chase where the Corvette is driving through a field of corn. And the and the Camaro is also driving through a field of corn, and a lot of it is filmed very close up from right inside the windshield of the Corvette, as the really really bright stalks of corn are being sort of pushed over by the noise of, cor- of the nose of the Corvette, and the ears of corn are hitting the windshield. And there's the really really bright blue of the sky and the very very bright yellow of the corn stalks, right? And it's like it's like very like Hong Kong cinema. Right? It's like, or like, it, or not even Hong Kong, maybe Japanese cinema. It's like, it feels very much like more Asian kind of movies. And I apologize for my lack of specificity in remembering which kind, but like, I guess Korean, because he's Korean. But it's like, and then, and then there's a moment where they figure out the two, the two stars who are chasing each other, are Schwarzenegger and uh, the last guy's last name is Noriega, I kid you not, who plays a drug dealer, are chasing each other uh-huh. and they both figure out that they can't see each other. So they're going to try to pull a Top Gun and stop. And so they both stop. Right, And the point now is if the cars move, they can hear the corn ears hitting the windshields of the cars. And so there's sort of like a, a tense, silent moment where they're listening through the corn for whether the other car is going to move or not. And that is a very asian crime drama kind of seem to have where like the two criminal like in an american version they would be bantering or they would be talking or shooting at each other right like the, the um the climaxes of american crime a- dramas and action movies tend to be very uh, much about kind of confrontation and communication right where there's often a sense of identity i think i don't know whether this is just thinking about like the killer the work of john woo even like infernal affairs right this idea that the the hero and the villain are kind of two sides of the same coin i don't know whether it's a yin and yang thing but there's like an aspect to which the hero and the villain are the same thing and are kind of trying to perceive each other kind of extra sensually. Sure. That's I mean, and this, you, yeah. this was
0: almost parodied, right, in in The Fugitive when Harrison Ford says, I didn't kill my wife and Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care, you know, and yeah. the, right? The, this, this sort of moment of communication or sort of, of recognition, right, yeah. like is something that's important in these kinds of movies. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, so like, so, but in, this, in, the, in sort of the more Asian motif, if I'm going to just make an, another guess, there's a lot of like the characters circle each other, they sense each other's movements, they recognize just from like the touch of swords you can recognize everything that you need to know about the other person right and so in that sense it, it feels much more like you can, if you're looking for it you can find the hallmark of the asian director yeah a- and i suspect that the 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 huge amount of car chases of like very fancy cars which are talked about in like a very gauche sort of way you know like there's a long discussion of like what is this car that we're chasing it's a really souped up corvette here's all the things it can do oh wow mm-hmm. let me look at it on my laptop it's awesome wow look at this car He's like really trying to like i, I kid you you're not. It's like pretty ridiculous. Um it's definitely trying to focus on people who want to see spectacle. Like who want to see a really fast sports car. For people for whom that would be novel. Right, um, to see a, a sports car driving through the Nevada desert.
0: Well, not not right. novel. You mean you mean compelling, right? Like because yeah, I suppose, people yeah. people who are into cars, you know, drooling over a sports car is not a novel experience, That's right? True. Like they, That's very true. Yeah. 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 they they do it a lot, but like I, I think that like there's an interesting thing that like the American taste seem to be seem to be changing, right? Like this is the and where where I sort of connect this up I, is some stuff I've read about like marketing of food products. Of like flavors of yogurt, right, and like chili, lime, jalapeno, uh, passion fruit yogurt, right, or like uh, the the sixty zillion sort of new flavor combinations, and that that the sort of what what is getting called the sort of millennial generation or the generation after, which I think is like just behind us or something, um, is is sort of into novelty, wants sort of uh, like extreme new. Uh, experiences and like the idea that the, you know, the idea that yogurt tastes like yogurt, um, is anathema right to this, to this sort of new generation. And so you, you. You sort of start to see, I mean, one of the things that, that you see is is that the property is the star, but then there's also this sort of the idea that like new, these are new actors, right? A lot of them. And, and they're not, they don't come with the kind of baggage that an Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, that an Arnold Schwarzenegger comes with. I mean, I guess thinking, I'm trying to think about action movies and I'm, I'm thinking about the Avengers and I, you know, I guess there were a, a lot of well-known actors in it, but also like, you know, I don't know, Jeremy Renner, right. Um, uh, which, which Hemsworth is it? Chris, right? Like these people don't come with the, the same amount of baggage, um, that, you know, that, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger comes with, even though we wreck or Harrison Ford comes with, or, or Sylvester Stallone comes with, even though now we, we, uh, we recognize their, Uh, Their faces
1: I want to make a comparison because we mentioned Liam Neeson and we mentioned how like Arnold Schwarzenegger is the poor man's Liam Neeson which I think is a great way of saying it I want to compare
2: fair but like you know still interesting to think about in terms of I don't know I mean they're both older gentlemen who sort of like want to anchor their action movies.
1: Right, right, right. And so I want to compare the movie Ransom from 1996 with the movie Taken, right, because they both have really important scenes that were a big part of the marketing where the male lead – and ransom's is like a Mel Gibson movie. The male lead is talking to the people who kidnapped his child and is informing him of how angry he is and how he is going to like find them and get them and kill them uh, if he doesn't do it, if they don't give it back, give the child back. And I remember in Ransom, Mel Gibson's main thing is that he's a rich guy, and he has all these resources, right? He can like call the cops. He can be relentless. He can yeah. use the system. Which um, is
2: why he was, he was targeted and part of like his guilt.
1: Yeah, okay. exactly. So it's like his speech focuses on this is how upset I am. Like I'm so upset about this thing, and I'm going to achieve, uh, approach it with such force, right? I, that I'm going to bring like hell down on you, right, or whatever. He doesn't say that, but it's like he's so angry. Liam Neeson, though, what's what's sort of the big part of his speech that's novel is like I have a very particular set of skills, right? Like there's this there's this unknown. The really compelling thing about the Taken speech, which was like one of the most important I think movie moments in action cinema in the past couple years, uh, is like in terms of, like, what does action cinema mean now, is, like, you don't know what's going to happen when Liam Neeson finds these guys, right? Like, anything could happen when Liam Neeson finds these guys. Because Liam Neeson isn't really known for doing anything specific other than being really threatening and, and, like, being large and smart and powerful and kind of crazy, right? Like, like Liam Neeson, when he shows up, he could fight a wolf. He could, you know, <laughs> with, like, he could hang out with Emma Watson. I'm Watson. Um, gosh, I always confuse the two. The one who's married to uh, Kenneth Brana oh god. A- Emma, god Emma Thompson Emma yeah. Thompson thank you Emma Watson and he pull like, out he his had...
2: lightsaber
1: yeah he, he could, did... could melt his face could...
2: off <laughs> right I was gonna say he could melt his face off he could uh yeah, he could, like, win a bunny at a carnival. <laughs> exactly.
1: Whereas when Arnold Schwarzenegger finds the bad guy, you know exactly what's going to happen. Um, and I, I kind of want to connect this to, like, torture porn, too, to, like, Saw and stuff like that. Where, like, people, if you have that urge to see violence, like, you want to see violence you haven't seen before. You want to see sort of, like, new and inventive kinds of violence. You don't want to see the sort of old standby violence, right? Like, uh, and, oh, and, and
0: things blowing up. Yeah, you don't want to see uh. Uh, that, right, that's why in Bad Boys 2, like, they couldn't just show you TNA anymore, they had to amp it up and show you TNA in the morgue.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of why the Expendables has to be kind of a joke, right? Is that like, cause it, you know, Expendables has to be overloaded and a joke. You can't do, that's why the Expendables 2 is so much better, I think, than Expendables 1, is that, like, it understands its role in the culture better. It understands that, like, if you're just going to go straight down the middle with it, like, you don't have anything that people are interested in in America. They want the new thing. They want the the thing they haven't seen. Yeah, totally whereas in asia you know arnold schwarzenegger in in a car chase they don't see that as much you know it's they didn't have movies movie theaters as much in the mid 80s in parts of china right like um it's a new thing for them and so and actually
0: the the idea i mean like actually, why why Taken I think is sort of more artistically successful than than torture porn. Other than I mean, not being reprehensible, you know, uh, on on its face, uh, though <laughs> there, there are some problematic things about Taken. Um, it, I mean, there's definitely yeah, probably
2: cultural stereotypes. Yeah, and I mean,
0: we're I, I think we're talking about a difference of, of degree. Uh, or, or maybe a sort of small qualitative difference, but not a difference in kind. I think, I think the, the reason that that taken speech is so good is that like in, um, that, that speech kind of gives your, your, your sort of fantasy, right? Like gives your sort of fear, your kind of this like psychoanalytic idea of like simultaneously feared for and longed for, right? Um, fantasies, uh, like time to work, like, oh, God, what is Liam? Ne- you know what I mean. Whereas in in torture porn, of course, it's all done to uh, Jack Bauer's daughter in you know very explicit detail.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking about um, Sylvester Stallone and where he fits in. He his sort of reinvented action movie type is a guy who's fairly inscrutable, like like the Sylvester Stallone character in the Expendables, whose name entirely escapes me. Like he he doesn't really show what he's thinking about what he's doing um right he's sort of like there's a great scene in expendables 2 where he's like yeah you know we like to keep it light but when we get dark we get pitch black, pitch black. <laughs> right yeah exactly where it's like you don't really know what i'm really like because i don't share that part of myself with you and that's kind of why it's interesting to watch me as an action movie hero because you you know what i'm gonna do but you don't really know why i'm doing it right and like arnold schwarzenegger his, mo- his methods aren't novel and his motivations aren't novel Right, so it's like, so what's the what's the sort of contemporary kind of excitement? What's the hook for seeing this one again? I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's kind of a sublime movie in certain ways. Like there's a certain there's a certain depth to it. it it's also a lot of shallowness to it. It, it has a bumpy bottom. Uh, but, uh, but Schwarzenegger's performance isn't bad. It's just that I don't think I think that. If he wants to be a viable action star, he needs to figure out a new way of being an action star other than being the sad, old, tired action star, which nobody wants to watch, right? Like, because it's sad. It's tired. (laughs) Like, um, you know, like Bruce Willis has a new way of doing things. You know, he's got the bald head and he's kind of super intense and, um, you know, he's sort of like – Quizzical and kind of questioning the world around him, right. which he sort of has always done. But yeah,
0: Harrison Ford but, hasn't quite figured it out.
2: No,
1: no he's an who hasn't figured it out.
2: I so. blame Calista Flockhart for that, though.
1: Huh. <laughs> she made him too happy.
2: Yeah, Is that the problem. <laughs> I'm actually really curious how the new Die Hard does because it's it's interesting. They're going back to making it R-rated after the last one was PG-13. So it's it's really like a test of like whether they can recapture the old magic. By by trying to recreate the old template instead of like trying to trying to triangulate a new audience for themselves,
1: we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out because the last yeah. one was successful, I think, even though it wasn't quite what people not,
2: wanted—not beloved. So I mean, I'm hopeful that like making it R-rated so they can at least the thing is like if the whole catchphrase of the series requires an R rating to be able to say, I say you kind of locked yourself into an R rating.
1: Yeah makes sense to me <laughs> well uh, I th- you know what other, other phrase requires an r rating to say <laughs> that's coming up, but I'll pass it to Matt first for a little business
0: <laughs> uh, yes, um I think I think you know what else w- requires an r rating is ending the podcast. No, I had a better segue than that. I forget what it is now the um the The thing that I wanted to just highlight before the end of this is not that you can email us a podcast um at overthinkingit.com. It's not that you can call or text 203 285 It's not that we invite you to join the comments on uh, the show notes for this episode. It's not that, hey, it would be nice if we got back into uh, giving ratings and reviews uh, to the episode on the iTunes page, which is uh, still the way that most people find podcasts. Um, it's not any of those. It's that we are having a freaking party where we are buying a cake for you to celebrate how awesome you are. Uh, and it's on... Uh, January twenty sixth, the Saturday night, January twenty sixth, at nine PM at the Eleventh Street Bar in uh, the East Village, and you can uh, come out and join us. You don't, I mean, uh, there's a Facebook uh, event, and it would be nice if you RSVP'd on the Facebook event. That way, we could know uh, what to plan for, how how big a cake to to buy, whether we need a cake that's the size of a tabletop or or just a small you know, a small like six by six inch cake that we, no I'm, I'm kidding, we're getting a cake the size of a tabletop in in any case um, yes, uh, so that, please come out, uh, but even if you don't RSVP on the Facebook event just, uh, just show up, now's the time this is your final call, come to our party and celebrate with us, five years of overthinking, and here is to five more years of the Site and this podcast, which you can find at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. ki Kaye Mother.
1: It probably doesn't mother.